this is your first time here, my name's Adam. You pick like the perfect weekend to show up. We are in week two uh, of our series uh, called Who Are You? And we are looking at uh, identity and, and the power that your self-perception has over your life. The things you think, the things you say, the things you do. Uh, so it's a really cool uh, series that we've been excited about for a while. I wanted to start uh, by talking about words. Did you know uh, that sometimes some words change meaning over time? Did you know that? Like, so like 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a word meant one thing, and then now it means something else. And it's really fascinating to kind of study, if you're kind of a nerd, um, like how a word can mean one thing, and then just the usage of that word changes and changes and changes. And then, you know, you can look back and be like, oh my gosh, this word used to mean this, and now it can mean the exact Opposite. So let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples here. Uh, first word I want to look at is awful. So if you say something's awful, uh, it means that it's terrible, right? It's bad. It's, it's not good. It's, it's really bad, right? Um, but just a couple hundred years ago, awful actually meant the opposite. Awful meant really good. Awful was actually a synonym with awesome. The, the word awe was in there. So awful meant full of awe. So it had like a good meaning. Um, but str- somehow, and again, I didn't really study it, but somehow over time, awesome absorbed all the positive aspects of the word awe and awful absorbed all the bad aspects of awe. So now, uh, when you say something is awful, you mean you're in awe of how bad it really is. So uh, just a couple hundred years later, it means the opposite. Here's another one, naughty. Uh, you don't use this word very often. Um, but, you know, it means a bad kid. Usually it's, it's just for like one month out of the year we use this word. It's a list that a kid does not want to be on because they're bad and they don't get anything for Christmas. Uh, but like, again, a couple hundred years ago, this word just meant like broke, like you didn't have anything. You're naughty, like, you know, if you had to file for bankruptcy, you're, you're naughty, you, you didn't have anything. Um, so, you know, if you're homeless, you're naughty. It's not that you're bad, it's just that you don't have anything. That's all it meant. And then uh, over time, now it means that you're uh, a kid who doesn't get anything for Christmas, which maybe there's some similarities there. Uh, my favorite one that I found this week, though, was the word flirt. Uh, so obviously, you know what the word flirt is, right? It's, you know, if you're trying to act or talk in such a way to let somebody know that you like them, uh, or if you play games, you want them to think that you like them even though you don't and you're a horrible human being, so stop it. Um, but back in the day, flirt simply meant to flick something away. That's all it meant, it was just to flick something away. You flirt that fly. Um, which I thought's interesting. So ladies, if you ever get flirted with by a guy and he's like coming on, and I think you just flick him really hard. And be like, what? I was just flirting, man. Like, that's what the word actually means. It's ironic, though, because my, my wife's not in here. She can testify to this. Um, if, she, if my wife is not giving me the attention that I both want and definitely deserve, um, <laughs> like if she's looking at something, or even like validly distracted, but it's, uh, some, for some reason I turn into an eighth grader and I will just start flicking her in the arm until she pays attention to me. And I do get attention. It's never the attention that I want, but I do get the attention. So I'm just going to start telling her that I'm flirting with her. Um, but she's not in here, so now the joke is completely ruined, but whatever. Uh, so over time, words change meaning. It takes a while, but it used to mean one thing, and now it means another thing. What about this word? This one shifted, right? And, and it's even hard to say <laughs> where it's at now, because I feel like this isn't even necessary. I don't think that there's a consensus on what this word even means right now. There's a cloud of confusion. I think some people think 
that this word simply means somebody who believes in God, right? If, if somebody who believes that there is a God and has some vague sense of spirituality, then you're a Christian, right? As long as you're not an atheist, as long as you don't adhere to some other religion, then Christian can kind of be the catch-all for everybody else. That's what some people believe. Some people believe that uh, this word means somebody who goes to church. You know, like if you're in a certain geographical location one time a week, or, you know, a couple times a month, um, then that's what you are. Some people think that this word simply means a judgmental jerk, (laughs) right? And on some levels, that's accurate. Um, Somebody who, you know, thinks they're better than everyone else. Somebody who wants to tell everybody else how they're supposed to live their life. Some people, and maybe this is the most people, think that this word simply means a good person. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be a good person, someone who's nice, someone who follows the rules, a good person. But what does this actually mean? What does this word actually mean? Because everything I just listed is wrong, just so you know. If you're sitting here going, oh yeah, that was me. They were all wrong to a certain extent. And this is really important. This is a really important question to answer, especially if you call yourself one, right? If you've ever said the sentence, I am a Christian, then you better know what it is you're saying. And I would even add that you probably should also know what the person you're telling that to thinks as well. Because if you just say that you're a Christian and they think one thing and you actually mean another, uh, you're going to have some miscommunication there. So you might want to clarify. But what does this word actually mean? So we're going to look in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 today. Uh, the guy who wrote that, Paul, really in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 answers this question, what this really means. He answers it emphatically, uh, and it's, it's really important what he writes here. I would argue that the first 10 verses of the second chapter of Ephesians are some of the most important verses in the Bible. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, but I want to warn you before uh, I start reading them. The first three verses here, they're rough, okay? Um, Our culture would would tend to disagree with these verses. If I went out and like read these verses on like a a street corner somewhere in New York, or if I went on the news and read these verses, there'd be like backlash to it. It would would be like, ugh, I I think people would not uh, appreciate these verses. You, if, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're not really familiar with this whole thing and the Bible and all these beliefs, you might like listen to me read these and go, I don't know about all that. Actually, I just don't agree with that. You, you might. You might. And it's kind of ironic because the first three verses, you know, they're rough. And again, there's a certain feel, but the last three uh, verses, eight through 10, that we're going to look at, they have a totally different feel, and I would say they're very popular compared to the first three. But if you don't get the first three, you won't really get the last three. You know what I'm saying? Like, you kind of have to understand the first three in order to get to the last three. Shut up and read them. Okay. Here it is. Once you were dead, dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins. Man, he just personalizes that. Like, he's talking about you, right? You used to live in sin. Just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Told you, right? You don't see a lot of, like... 
coffee mugs with this on it, right? You don't see people posting like a picture of a sunset and putting these verses on Facebook, right? This isn't a suit. You wouldn't get very many likes if you did that, just so you know. Um, because what this, this is saying is that uh, the natural state of the human race is sinful. Humans are not inherently good. We're not even inherently neutral, that we are actually sinners by nature and by choice. We are born spiritually dead. And the same way Satan rebelled against God and went his own way, like we do that too, that we choose our own way instead of God's way. That's why I'm telling you these verses are rough, right? You walk up to somebody who's not a Christian and if you would like summarize, if if your first step was like, hey, uh, so you're dead and uh, you're You have many sins, many sins. You obey the devil and God's anger is resting upon you. Probably wouldn't be a great conversation, right? They're not going to be like, oh, tell me more, please. Um, Not to say that you're not going to talk about this because this is actually a really important piece of Christianity, but you might not want to start there, just a pointer. Um, But this is hard, right? So if you are a Christian, what these verses are saying is that it's not that you were an okay person and now Jesus made you better. It's not that you were kind of like a little off course and now Jesus has given you the path. These verses are saying that you were dead and Jesus made you alive spiritually. Spiritually speaking, you had no pulse and Jesus came along and brought you to life. That's what these verses are saying. Now, some people have a really big problem with this. Um, maybe they don't like the idea of sin. Uh, maybe they don't like that God would do things this way at all. Um, or maybe they just think that some of the things that God calls sin um, are, are a little outdated. Like, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's 2019. Maybe God should come out with like an update to the Bible, like God's Word 2.0 maybe, you know, and like this part maybe doesn't make it to the next version. You know, I, some people maybe feel that way. Um, and maybe, maybe you do. So, can I tell you what it's like to question this? Um, to question God and, and like how he runs the universe and the way he set things up to work and the things that he says is wrong and he says is right. I want to tell you what it's like um, to question that. So, I am a Marvel fan. I love the Marvel movies. Those are superhero movies if, you're not, if you don't know what Marvel is. And just to clarify what level of nerd I am. Uh, I want you to know, I see I'm going to be very specific here. I, am, I don't read the comic books. I don't know anything that happens in the comic books. So I'm not that kind of a nerd, okay? I consider, like if I'm talking about the Marvel movies with somebody and they're like, well, you know in the comic books, I'm like, okay, listen. <laughs> uh, you're a real nerd. I'm a pseudo nerd, okay? You're a varsity nerd. I'm a JV nerd. I'm not, I don't play on that level, okay? So I love the movies. I don't know anything about the comic books. Um, but I, I do really, really love the movies. Uh, my favorite Marvel movie is Black Panther. Do with that what you want. I don't know if that makes sense uh, on any level. But it's a really deep movie. Uh, it's not just superheroes fighting. It's ideas that are fighting. I, I, I find it fascinating. My least favorite Marvel movie is Ant-Man. Uh, I don't care if Paul Rudd is funny. Shrinking down to really small is not that cool of superpower. I just don't care about it. Um, so anyways, uh, there are 23 Marvel movies in the cinematic universe. You know that 23 over like 10 years, there's 23 Marvel movies. The total runtime of these 23 movies is 3,000 minutes. 3,000 minutes. That's 50 hours worth of superhero 
movies. Now, the cool part is each one of those movies can stand alone. You could sit down and watch one of those and, and generally get a good story. But the 23 movies actually tell an overarching story as well. So while they could stand alone, you need to watch them all to actually see the big picture. The re- so let me combine two kinds of nerds. So that's the Marvel nerd in me, but then the Bible nerd in me is like, you know what? That's actually the way the Bible works too, that there's 66 books in the Bible, but, and they all each tell their own individual story, but they also tell an overarching, like the story of God in there as well. So Marvel and the Bible actually have something in common. Uh, told you that was going to be nerdy. Um, but... Just say, to pretend with me for a minute that you've never seen any of the Marvel movies. For some of you, this is easy. You never have, so you don't have to pretend. But even if you've seen one or if you've seen them all like me, just pretend you've never seen any of these movies before. And let's say I walk you into a theater, into one of them, one of the 23, and I let you watch five seconds of this movie. Five seconds, and then I pull you right back out, and, and we have a conversation in the hallway after your five seconds of watching this movie, and I ask you, hey, what's the... So what's the Marvel Cinematic Universe about? Based on your five seconds worth of experience. Would anything you say be right? Would anything you say be right? Uh, I don't know, like a guy with a shield? Uh, A green guy. Like, would anything you say in that moment, based on your five seconds of experience, would it it be right? That would be, that's an absurd thing, right? To, To think that you could sum up 23 movies, 50 hours worth of movies based on five seconds of experience. Even worse than that, can you imagine if like I pulled the, dir- the director or some of the writers of these movies over and, and you actually wanted to say, hey, you know what, man? I got some pointers for you. Uh, I actually didn't agree with the lighting in the scene that I saw. And I like, man, you picked that actor for that role? I don't know, man. Can you imagine having the guts to say to one of these guys, hey, I just think that maybe you could have done that better. Can you imagine the conversation? Be like, so yeah, have you seen them all? No, I've seen five seconds of one of them. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because that's kind of what it's like, isn't it? For us to talk to a, a God who has existed for, from eternity past, who, who knows like everything, who even just in the human history, the thousands of years that humans have lived, God has uh, existed through all of that. And then we come in with our 20, 30 40 years of experience and we want to say, hey God, get a pen and paper. Come here. I got, I got some stuff. I got some ideas, some improvements that you could make here. Like isn't, that's, that's absurd. That's even more absurd than saying you could watch five seconds of a Marvel movie and, and understand the whole thing. And, and maybe, maybe you're older, maybe you're 70 or 80. What do I give you then? Six seconds? Six seconds worth of watching a, a movie and trying to explain the whole thing. I guess here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't question things and I'm not saying you shouldn't ask questions. You need to ask questions. I guess I'm more asking to consider your attitude as you do that. Maybe a level of humility would be good. Maybe coming in, not coming in hot, not coming in with, I just disagree with that. Maybe we could come in and be like, all right, Lord, so listen, (laughs) you've existed for all this time. You have this whole master plan. Maybe I'm talking about things that I don't understand and come in with with a different attitude. Even when we read verses like this that are hard, that we maybe do have some legitimate questions about. Let's just watch our perspective, our attitude on that. So this says that we're sinners. That's what this says, that the human race fell into sin very early on, and ever since, every single human born is a sinner. That's the bad news. Now, it continues. He doesn't leave us here, right? This is the worst part of the verses we're going to look. It turns immediately in four. 
but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sin, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. But God, but God. It's gotta be some of the best words in the Bible. There's this turn, you were spiritually dead, but God. You're a sinner, but God. Your life's a mess, but God. There's always a, a turn there. It never stays in the same direction. When you have those words come in, they just, they take everything and they turn it. And that could be true in your life as well. Whatever's going on right now, but God, he can change everything. And look, it says that he loved us so much. That love was his motivation. Uh, And he loved you, look at what it says, before you cleaned your life up. Do you see that? It, It happened before you cleaned your life up. And I think that truth goes against our natural instincts a lot. Most people's instinct is to try and clean their life up before coming to God, right? Even when I invite people to church and stuff, a lot of times I get back, you know, I just need to get some stuff straight. I need to, you know, I need to do some things. And the, the idea is, yeah, I can't show up like this. I can't show up with this stuff in my life. I need to take care of some of this things. Then I could come. Like God expects you to wash up before coming into his throne room or something. Like he's afraid you're going to get mud on his carpet or something. Like you're going to have to do this before you can present yourself to God. But, but listen, this says God loves you even in the middle of your mess. This says that, you know, God is pursuing you even if you're running in the exact opposite direction of him. That he wants you to come to him just right exactly in the situation you're in, not having attempted to clean up anything. He wants you to come to him. Because guess what? You can't clean up without him. That's the biggest truth anyways. You can try all you want to clean your life up without God. It's just not going to work. It might work for a while, but it's not going to stick. You actually need him to do the cleaning. So if that's what you're waiting on, I mean, you're here now, so I I suppose this is a big step for some people to actually show up to church. But man, if you're waiting on something to like take that next level in your life, that next spiritual step, if you're like, man, I gotta get some stuff straight, man, just take it. Just go and allow God to work on you as you go. God loves you in the middle of your mess. Paul continues in verse six. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as an example of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. So God brought me to life. God brought you to life. He breathed spiritual breath into our lungs. He zapped our spiritual heart back to life and This says that like one of the reasons he did that is so that he can point to us as an example to others of of the kind of work he does. God saved me so God can save you. God loves me so therefore God can love you. God took me from who I was to who I am so God can transform you too. God wants to point to you. And the work he's done in your life as an example to others of the mighty power that he has to work in people's lives. So he actually wants to use you, you as an example for others. He wants to hold your life up and say, look what I did here. So other people can go, oh, wow. If he did it for them, maybe he can do it for me. So God brings us to life spiritually. I don't know if you get, so, so the first three verses kind of set up this, hey, you were dead, and then Jesus brought you to life. Um, the only question that hasn't been answered yet is how. 
How did this happen? We were dead, now we're alive. How did, how did it work? What, 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 what was the transformation? What was the point at which like, the heart started beating, uh, that breath got sucked into our spiritual lungs? Verses 8 through 10 answer that question, and these are uh, some of the most important verses in the Bible. If you said, hey, Adam, pick three verses to explain Christianity to somebody, verses 8 through 10 would be the verses that I would pick. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So how God brought us to life is by his grace through faith. By his grace through our belief. It is God's grace that saves us. Not just belief in God, by the way, but belief in what Jesus did on the cross. It's not just uh, believing that there's some being out there that's more powerful than you are. It is belief specifically in what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. And belief in Jesus and trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross is the thing that activates this whole thing. And notice what it says salvation is not. So I love the clarifications. This is what it is and this is what it isn't. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done. Salvation is not a reward for you being a good person. That's not what this is. Heaven is not a reward for a well-lived life. That's not what it is. God gives salvation. It can't be earned. It can't be earned. You're, you're not building a resume to hand to God when you die. to go, here, that's why you should let me in. <laughs> Hope you like it. I used APA format and everything. Like, I hope you don't think that you're going to be able to come up there with your resume of all the things that you've done and, and have God go, you know what? I'm impressed. I, I, I'm going to let you in here. That's not, what it, that's not the way this works, right? It's not a reward for the good things we've done. And it says, so none of us can boast about it. So what this kind of excludes for us as Christians is, man, it, it kind of excludes a prideful attitude, right? Which I think is, is ironic. Because by, Christ, by nature, Christians should be humble. Because when you say, I am a Christian, you just told everybody that you believe that you're a sinner. By nature and by choice. And that you were saved by nothing that you did. You're not actually saying anything good about yourself when you say you're a Christian. You're saying a lot of good things about God. You're not saying a lot of good things about yourself. You're actually admitting that you're not good. So it's really weird to have like this judgmental kind of cocky attitude about things when all you're doing by saying you're, you're a Christian is admitting your own faults. So our default attitude, again, should be humility, not just towards God, but towards others as well. And then notice, this is what's awesome about this. So you have verse 8 and verse 9 and then verse 10, the good works do come in. But notice the good works came after God did the saving, not before God did the saving. We are his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So he saves us, then the good works come in. Good works come after. You don't do good works to, so that God will save you. God saves you so that you can do good works. Your motivation to live the life that God wants you to live is not so God will love you. It's because he already does love you. The order here is really important. You aren't doing good things to earn heaven. You're doing good things because God already gave you heaven. You, you don't earn God's favor. He already gave it, so therefore you are responding to that. Christianity is the, a religion of response. God worked, and then we respond to that work. And that truth, the truth that God loved us while we were yet sinners, 
that Jesus died for our sins in our place, that everything we've ever done or will do is forgiven, it should like, like explode in our hearts and motivate us to live our lives to serve the God who did all that for us. That's how this is supposed to work. You see, you're not, you're not supposed to live your life motivated by guilt all the time or motivated because uh, you hope that someday God's gonna do some good things for you because you did some good things for him. That's not supposed to be your motivation. You're supposed to be motivated by what he already did for you. This is a response to what he already did. Really, this is the thing that makes Christianity completely unique. Every, every other world, uh, world view on the earth has this flipped the other way around. You work your way to whatever deity there is. But Christianity takes it and flips it and says, no, no, no. Actually, God worked his way to us. And then now we respond to that. It's not because we're good, it's because he's good. That's what makes us Christian. So, this word, this word, what does it actually mean? See, a Christian's not a good person. <laughs> that's out, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 told us that's, you can't claim that. <laughs> that's why... It, if you ever caught me, I don't know if, if we've ever talked before, and if anybody ever says, I'm a good person, I'm like, yeah, actually, you're not. <laughs> um, and that's, I know that's a horrible thing to say, because you don't mean that you're like good like God. You mean you're good like compared to other people, and I get that. But theologically, you shouldn't actually say that I'm a good person. It's actually, the Bible says you're not. Again, compared to God, which is the standard that you want to use. So you probably shouldn't say that. Christian's not a good person. If you say you're a Christian, you don't mean that you're a good person. You actually are admitting that you're a sinner. And a Christian... This word can't possibly mean judgmental jerk, right? Because we just said that, man, the Christian didn't do anything to earn what they were given. They, they were given everything. And, and, and to say that I am a Christian means that I am a sinner and I am saved by grace, so I can't possibly be saying that. Looking at somebody else saying, hey, you, you need to get your life together. We can't say that because we didn't do it, right? We can't tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus to get their life together in order to come to Jesus because that's not the way it worked for us. That would be absurd for us, actually, to step outside of Christianity and tell them this is how you should live to get to come to God. No, no, no. That doesn't, that doesn't work. They can't clean their life up. You're telling them to do something spiritually impossible. Why would we be judgmental about people who don't know Jesus yet? I didn't mean for you to answer. I'm happy you didn't because you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. And this isn't a church person. I didn't see anywhere in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 about church. It's important, but it's not in there. No, Christian, what this word means is forgiven. That's what this verse, that's what you're saying. A Christian person is a forgiven person. This is the deep, true mark of a Christian. Is that you know you've messed up and that God, through Jesus, has forgiven you. So, I don't ever assume that everybody in the room has already become a Christian. So, so if you're sitting here going, you know what, I'm, I'm not there yet. I, I haven't, you know, I, I'm curious. Maybe somebody convinced me to come here. They bribe me. We're going to go to lunch after their buy-in. I don't know where you're at. Um, but, but if you haven't made this decision yet, I guess the thing I want to present to you is what this word really means. Is that, is that you're sitting here knowing that, you know what, you're not perfect. You already know that. That you've, you've messed up in your life. You've screwed up probably way more than you would even want to admit. But you know it deep down in here. And that uh, the offer of Christianity is that Jesus came and he lived the life we were supposed to live and he died on the cross and took 
that sin that you've committed, all the sins that you've committed, he took it onto himself. And, and now you can, by, by just admitting you're a sinner and putting your trust in what Jesus did, you can become a Christian. God forgives you based off not of what you did, but what Jesus did. And that's what it means to, to become a Christian, is to trust in Jesus and to say, you know what? I'm forgiven. So if you've never done that, man, I want to like just present it to you and say, hey, make that decision. You, you can pray right now. You can say, hey, God, I know I've messed up. I believe in, in what Jesus did and, and I trust in him. I, I, I give my life to you. Forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. And you can become a Christian like right now. So if, if you've never done that, man, I just want to invite you to like do it right now. Uh, pray to God. Uh, it's between you and God. You can do it right now. Maybe you already have. Many of you already have. Many of you know that you are forgiven. You already knew you were messed up. Uh, you knew you've had a lot of screw-ups in your life and you know that Jesus died for you and he pays for them. But let's apply this idea to your identity. So your identity is really important. You can know this and still not operate like it's true. Because who you believe you are, you know, it's going to affect how you think, it's going to affect how you speak, it's going to affect how you act. So um, how does this idea that you are forgiven affect how you think about yourself? I saw this quote this week that really stuck with me. A guy named Louis Giglio said this. Um, Shame is the process of being defined by our sin and shortcomings. Shame is the process of being defined by our sin and our shortcomings. So what if Satan's big play he runs against you is not just to get you to do some things that you shouldn't? What if that's not Satan's main play? What if that's like a misdirection? He's making you look this way. But what Satan really wants to do is get you to see those things not as something that you do, but as who you are. He actually wants to take it down a level, not just that you do them, but that you are those things. Every time you screw up, Satan is whispering in your ear, this is not just something you do, this is who you are. It's not just that you lied, it's that you are a liar. It's not just that you yelled at your kids, you are a bad parent. It's not just that you made a bunch of choices that only benefited you, it's that you're selfish. It's not just that you laid around all day, it's that you are lazy. You are a thief, you are a gossip, you are worthless. He doesn't just want to let you stay on the I did that level. He wants to dig all the way down into your soul and and stamp it down there and say, it's not just that you did it, it's that you are that thing. Because Satan's main goal is to prevent you from becoming who God created you to be. Satan wants to prevent you from doing what God created you to do. And he knows the best way to do that is to get you to define yourself by your worst moments. That's what he wants. He wants you to walk around feeling like you are your biggest mistakes. That's what he wants. Because then you're just walking around with that weight on your back. And you know, you're never going to stand up straight if you just own that thing. If you just say, nah, it's not just that I did that thing, it's that I am that thing. He knows you'll never reach your potential if he just puts that on your back, stamps that into your identity. And then now you're not, in your own, maybe you say it out loud, I don't know, but, mo- but in your head, you're not saying I did it, you're saying I am it. And he knows that that's it, man. He's got you now because you can never make it to what God's called you to be, to do what God's called you to do because you're gonna stay stuck here because it isn't just that you did the thing, it's that you are the thing and now you believe that it's part of who you are so therefore there's no way you could possibly change because this is who I am. He knows it's the, it's the final trap. It's the final lock in the cage to say, now, they're, now I've got him because they don't just believe that they did it, they believe that they are it. 
That's why the Bible calls Satan the accuser. He's really good at this. He, he whispers to your soul. He whispers these things and he doesn't just say that you did it. He says that you are. It. For me, this battle happens right there every, every single Sunday when we're singing. That's when he attacks me. It's great. He's really good timing. He starts whispering in my ear. You sure you can go up there? <laughs> you didn't really love your wife like Jesus loves the church this week, did you? My wife's not in here to say amen to that. Didn't really sacrifice for your kids like you're supposed to. You, you, you sure you studied hard enough there, pastor? You know, there's a lot of people who disagree with the way you're doing this. This fog in here, you know, the, all that stuff. It's, and then it's, it's not just that I do these things. It's all of a sudden you're not good enough. You're, you're worthless. You're, you, you can't possibly expect to walk up there worthy to speak to these people. All that stuff happens in, in, in just a couple of minutes right here. And, and listen, if I'm not, first of all, I have to be a little bit mentally tough. I have to know it's coming. I've got to have the hands up, you know, ready to get punched. But secondly, I've got to know deep down inside who I am, right? I, I'm not actually, not, the, the, isn't it crazy that the, the worst thing Satan does is actually not lie to you? It's to tell you the truth about you? I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only sinner in the room. But um, for me, it's when he tells me the truth about me. That's actually the stuff that actually damages me the most. He just leaves out the fact that Jesus died for all the stuff he's talking about. He doesn't talk about that. He just talks about all the stuff that I did. And then he tries to stamp it deeper into who I am. But see, if I know, if I know deep down in, and this is where the fight happens right here. If I know, hey, you know what? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're not wrong. I could have loved my wife better. I could have loved my kids better. I could have studied harder. Uh, I, I can do all that stuff better. You're right. But um, Jesus died for all that, man. <laughs> and that's like, you know, he's, he's swinging his sword at you. That, once you say, you know what, you're right. But Jesus died for it. And guess what? I, it's, it's not that I am those things. You know what I am? I'm forgiven. And that's like taking the sword out of his hand and stabbing him with it. Because you just listed all the reasons Jesus died for me. And he did it anyways. That I was dead and now I'm alive. I, I, I was uh, spiritually DOA, no heartbeat, no breathing. And Jesus brought me to life. That Jesus paid for all that stuff already. And if I know that deep down in here. <laughs> what can he do? The accuser now. He has nothing left to say. He can, he can say it all he wants. But Jesus, Jesus owns all that stuff. Jesus took all that stuff on the cross. So now I don't have to own it. I don't have to own it. It's not, it's not stuck to me anymore. It's not a part of my identity. See, some of you in this room, you struggle because you see yourself through the lens of your past mistakes. You, you don't just see it as something that you did. You don't just see it as some destructive pattern. You see it as who you are. You absorbed it into your identity. Look at Peter, 1 Peter 2.24. Talking about Jesus here. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what's right. By his wounds, you are healed. So that thing that you did or that thing that you do or that pattern that you have, this says that Jesus carried it in, in his body onto that cross. So, so every time you say, that's not just something I did, every time you take that and you say, that's who I am, you're like having to walk up to the cross and take it and like keep it for yourself. All this, all this stuff that Jesus paid for, he paid a high price for, you're actually walking back up and taking it back. This is, no, 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 let, let him, let Jesus keep it so that you can be dead to sin and alive to what's right. There's this grand reversal 
You're not dead anymore. You're spiritually alive. So you can be dead to that sin. You can be dead to that pattern. You can be dead to that mistake. Jesus took it. See, God wants to come in and stamp over all those mistakes, all those failures, all those patterns. He wants to come in and stamp the word forgiven over top, all of them. Rather than absorbing your past mistake into your identity, you can say, no, 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 this isn't who I am. I did it, but Jesus died for it. I did it, but Jesus died for it. And he took it, it's his now. So the next time you want to come talk to me, Satan, about my sin, you're actually going to have to go to him because he has it now. I don't even have this anymore. I'm clean. I'm free. So, uh, bad news. You're going to screw up this week. You know that, right? Who, y'all perfectionists in the room, you hate that, right? You're like, you know what? I got a chance at pulling off the perfect week. No, you don't. You're going to fail, probably before we even get out of the room. You know? You're going to fail on the way home. You're going to fail this afternoon. You're definitely going to fail tomorrow morning. Like, it's, it's Monday, man. You're, you're going down. Satan's going to get you, okay? You're going to mess up. And I think in those moments, you have to decide, is this something that I did or is it who I am? And that, I think this is where your battle lines are drawn. I, you're going to mess up. You are. That, that's why Jesus died. He, he died because he knew that was going to happen. He, he knew you were going to do that before he died on the cross. You know that, right? It's not like he was like up on the cross going, oh, wait, I didn't realize they're going to do that. Like, he's not surprised by this. He knows you. He knows what you're capable of. So you're going to mess up. The real battle this week is going to be, do you own it? Do, do you actually absorb it into your identity? Do you not just say that's something I did? Do you actually say this is who I am? That's where the battle's going to take place. Can you confidently say, no, 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 my identity, who I am, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And that stamp goes over all that stuff. All the stuff I'm going to do this week, I'm forgiven. So I don't have to stay down. I can get right back up. Don't punish. You know, what are you punishing yourself for? Jesus already paid for it. Get up and keep going. Get up. You don't have to wallow in some shame. Don't allow shame to start to infect who you are. You are forgiven. And if you know that, you know that, know that deep down inside. Satan's going to have a hard time getting to you. You are forgiven. That is who you are.